Welcome to the Bigger Pockets Money Podcast, Finance Friday Edition, where we answer your tough listener questions about CFPs, 401ks, car loans, LLCs, cash versus equity, and investing in the stock market. Hello, hello, hello. My name is Mindy Jensen, and with me, as always, is my has the answers to all the tough questions co-host, Scott Trench. Great to be here with my tells it like it is co-host, Mindy Jensen. Scott and I are here to make financial independence less scary, less just for somebody else, to introduce you to every money story because we truly believe financial freedom is attainable for everyone, no matter when or where you're starting. That's right. Whether you want to retire early and travel the world, go on to make big time investments in assets like real estate, start your own business, or debate the intricate nuances of whether or not to form an LLC, several LLCs, or no LLCs, we'll help you reach your financial goals and get money out of the way so you can launch yourself towards those dreams. Scott, before we jump in today, we have a new segment on the show called The Money Moment. This is where we share a money hack, tip, or trick to help you on your financial journey. And today's money moment is, have you thought about cycling your subscriptions? You love that one show on Netflix or Apple, but it only comes on yearly or every couple of years. Cancel your subscription until it comes back on. If you're not using the app after the show is over, turn it off and reactivate when it comes back on. This way, you can try several apps and not pay crazy amounts to keep them all. I actually do this when I am watching a show that is only available on that one app. I'll watch it and then I'm done and I cancel at the end of the month because I it's getting to the point where there's one thing on this episode and one thing on that show and one thing on this streaming channel. It's like, it's too much. I want to keep up with pop culture, but it's getting to be a full-time job and full-time pricing. Yeah. I, I completely agree with that. I think um, that, you know, it's focus on the one buy the monthly subscription for these TV programs and uh, enjoy it and then turn it off and go to the next one. Then cancel. Do you have a money tip for us? Email moneymoment at biggerpockets.com. Remember when you had to pay to get a lead's phone number? It was like the dark ages. Until Deal Machine made skip tracing a thing of the past. Now, with your Deal Machine plan, you'll get unlimited access to phone numbers and contact information for no extra cost. That's right. Get high-quality, reliable information trusted by leading financial institutions, all fully compliant with the federal do-not-call list. Explore over 150 data points, including age, gender, marital status, occupation, and a ton more. Trust me, this is the data you need for off-market deals. With new filters, people flags, and color-coded phone numbers, lead management just got a ton easier. Ready to step up your investing game? Sign up for a Deal Machine plan today and gain immediate access to this unlimited treasure trove of contact information and phone numbers. Just head to dealmachine.com BP. Transform your lead generation and deal-making strategies with Deal Machine. Sign up today and start exploring the unlimited possibilities at dealmachine.com BP. When it comes to financial guidance, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When Mindy and I want to upgrade our wallets, we turn to NerdWallet. Scott's right. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, Mindy and I were paying for vacations in cash, missing out on miles, and not even knowing what we're leaving on the table. But now we're flying through the skies for free, thanks to our new cards with more miles and upgrades than ever. So if you want more travel rewards, hotel upgrades, or airport lounge access, no matter where you go next, let NerdWallet help you make it happen with a killer travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at NerdWallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. 
As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms of each credit card issuer apply. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that I turned one of my first homes into an Airbnb? It's true. And it even helped me get the extra income I needed to launch my real estate career. So if you want to try your hand at making even more income with your property, Airbnb is the place to be. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Several weeks ago, we tried a new type of Finance Friday where we answered listener questions and hard money questions from across the internet in a form of an advice column. This was pretty popular. We got good feedback on it, so we decided to bring it back. As a reminder, if you'd like to submit a tough money question for us to answer, please send us a voice memo or written question at biggerpockets.com slash money question. With that, let's kick it off. Mindy, you have the first one today? I do. Dear Mindy and Scott, how do I go about asking a financial advisor about their fees? When I inquired, they laughed it off, stating that all funds have fees. I want to ask in the correct way this time to get an accurate answer. Thanks, Kay. So, uh, Kay, your financial, your your potential uh, financial advisor gave you all the information you need here. They are, a f- uh, uh, they they make their money based on charging for assets under management and likely selling other types of insurance products. There's other ways financial planners make money. When I, I think to reframe your question, what you're looking for at the highest level is: Are you a fee only financial advisor, or do you make money? In other ways, right? So be careful with this. Financial advisors are sometimes super slick. They'll talk about a big game and how they're how they're uh, managing your money with these tax advantage strategies or you know uh, tax loss harvesting and all this other kind of stuff. And it's going to sound super slick. Those are those are financial planners again who make their money with with by uh, charging for assets under management and often selling you insurance products. What you're looking for is a fee only financial advisor. One trap that is starting to become more and more prevalent is financial advisors are calling themselves fee-based. They know people like UK are looking for fee-only financial advisors, so they charge a fee for their time and they charge for assets under management and sell expensive life insurance products. You're not looking for that, in my opinion. You're looking for a fee-only financial advisor. All financial advisors got to make money, so they're going to charge you either fees or they're going to uh, manage your assets under management or uh, sell you sell you insurance products most likely. Um, fee based financial planners get to do it all. Uh, that's and for me personally, that's not what I'm looking for. I'm looking for a fee only financial advisor, and the fee only financial advisor should be upfront and clear with the rates that they charge on an hourly basis per project per year, whatever they whatever they base those fees on. Scott, I think you hit the nail on the head when you said they told you all that you need to know by their answer, and they did. Uh, when I inquired, they laughed it off. Okay, yeah. You know what? They laughed at you when you asked them what they charge. That right there tells me that this person either doesn't respect you or isn't going to treat you with the respect that you deserve. So it doesn't matter what that particular financial advisor charges. It doesn't sound like they're a good fit for you. And that's something that I think is important to keep in mind. You are allowing someone to either manage your assets or give you advice about managing your assets. That's a big responsibility. That needs to be somebody that you respect, you want to listen to, and somebody who respects you and wants to listen to you. So in addition to all the great advice that Scott gave, 
I would say this guy isn't for you and find somebody who will answer your question with an honest answer. Um, the fee based sounds like a bunch of garbage. It's the best of both worlds for them. I would love for somebody to pay me a commission and also an hourly fee, but that's not how it works in real estate. I mean, I guess it is for some people, but that's not how I work. When I hear fee based, I run away. Yeah. And find somebody who speaks to you in the manner you want to be spoken to. And there's nothing wrong with saying, I don't think we are a good fit and stopping talking to them. Um, Scott, did you say XY Planning Network? I have not. That's a great one to plug. Yeah. Okay. Well, now's a great time to plug the xyplanningnetwork.com because that's a great place to go to find a fee-only financial advisor who will speak to you the way that you want to be spoken to, who has specialties in a variety of different things. They have people who specialize in widows and widowers or people who specialize in uh, those who run their own business, the LGBTQ community. Real estate investors. Real estate investors. They have a financial advisor for you. So xyplanningnetwork.com. And we have no current affiliation with XY Planning Network uh, uh, that I'm aware of. Nope. They're just a really great company that I like to recommend because they do such a good job. Let's go to the next question here. Dear Mindy and Scott, my wife has an old 401k from a previous job with 12 grand in it. We could really use these funds to work on the house and pay off credit card debt. I have a great pension, and she is already working on a new 401k at her new job. How much does $12,000 actually hurt our investing in the long run? I know we would pay 20% tax on it, but with personal interest loans at 10%, it doesn't seem like too bad of an option. Sincerely confused. Okay, so not only are they paying a 10% early withdrawal penalty, they are paying taxes on it as well. So they said 20%. I'm going to assume that this falls in the 20% tax bracket in order to go with these numbers. But $12,000 in the market, time in the market is better than time in the market. I am more concerned with why they have credit card debt than the fact that they have credit card debt. Did they run into one little snafu and then they're going to be able to, once they pay it off, everything's going to be fine? Or are they going to cash out this $12,000, pay the fines and penalties and taxes on it, and then find themselves in the same position again in a year? If your underlying spending isn't in check, then I would say absolutely not. Keep the money in the 401k, get your spending in check, and then figure out a different way to pay off your debt. If your underlying spending is in check, this was just a one-time thing, maybe your roof exploded or whatever, and it wasn't covered under insurance, it's more of just a you know fluke, then I'd have to I'd have to look at, you know, how old are they? Are they in their 20s? I think this would be a really bad idea in their 20s. All that time to grow. I don't like taking money out of an old 401k. I really don't. I like putting it, I like leaving it there or rolling it over into a new 401k or a new IRA. I just think there's other ways to generate $12,000 to pay this off. Grab a side hustle that pays you $1,000 a month in a year. You've got this same $12,000 without paying the penalty of the taxes because what's 10%? That's uh, $1,200 is gone. So now we're at 10,800 and then you've got to pay taxes on that. So what's 20% of that? That's another 
$2,400. I mean, you barely have anything left over after you pay the taxes and fees. I think that pulling money out of a 401k should be a last resort. It should be an emergency or really we should try to avoid it at all costs. Or I should be pulling it out because I have an opportunity to arbitrage it that's so lucrative that I can't forego it, right? So if these folks were saying, I got $10,000 in the bank and I want a house hack right now, and this is the way I'm going to do it is by, by taking out this money. Okay, I've got some concerns. I've got some questions. Maybe you delay, but I ultimately would say that there's there's merit in that. The returns on a house hack might be better than what these folks can get in a in a, a 401k if that's really what they want to do. But what we're hearing here is we want to work on the house and pay off credit card debt. And she is already working on a new 401k at her new job. So first of all, why are we contributing to a new 401k while liquidating an existing 401k? There's a penalty associated with early withdrawal. Before you liquidate your current 401k, which I don't recommend you do, you at least should stop contributing to the new 401k. Right. So that, that, that's, that's a no brainer there. That's the first step we take here. If you really need this, this money, um, I would attack the credit card debt like an emergency and try to cash flow the house, uh, investment at all costs, um, or, or as, as uh, uh, the best of my ability rather than tap into this 12,000 that's already been tax advantaged in the 401k personally. So that's my simple answer. And there's a number of steps I would take before pulling it as a last resort. If it really came down to that. Yeah. I don't like pulling money out of a 401k unless, like you said, there's another opportunity. I don't think either of these qualify as the other opportunity. Awesome. Moving on. Dear Mindy and Scott, a year ago, I purchased the truck at 5.9% rate. I happened to check the account and loan and the rate says 3.9%. Should I come clean and alert the bank or stay quiet and hope they don't ask for more money later? Sincerely, TB. This is a dilemma, Scott, because on the one hand, you want to come clean. You want to act ethically and honestly. On the other hand, it's a bank that made a mistake. How how much do you want to alert them to the fact that they made a mistake? And a year ago, rates could have been 3.9%, but they probably weren't. So TB has given us a trick question here. The answer is to sell the truck immediately and buy a much more reasonable, <laughs> uh, paid-off, fuel-efficient vehicle um, with the proceeds of that. So that's that's the right answer here. Next question. Just kidding. Um, uh, but, but that that is that is exactly what I would I would do. Um, in this case, like the bank, the bank never makes an error in your favor, right? So um, uh, it's always it's always in the reverse. You got to be paying out uh, attention with these things. Good on you for spotting this. Um, what I would do is I would inquire, I would I would contact the mortgage company and say, I'm looking over my statements, can you just confirm these facts about my mortgage? I'm just looking, to, I'm looking to confirm um, uh, these items. And I think that's a great approach that gives you on the right side of the ethical balance without calling out, do I have a, uh, a higher interest rate here? Just, just, can you please confirm that the, the, uh, that my, 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 my most recent statement was accurate with these things here. I think that would be the approach I'd take and see what they come back with. If you were really sure that it was a 5.9% rate, um, and there wasn't a variable component to this, then yeah, I, I think that there's, there's an ethical, um, uh, uh, item there to, to call it out and change it. But the first thing, first step I would take is calling up the bank and actually just confirming the number on there. Maybe they'll provide context or a statement or whatever, um, that, that clears the situation up for you and explains why your rate's lower than you thought it was. I wonder if he was always paying 3.9 or if 
he started off paying 5.9 and it dropped for some reason. That's a good answer, Scott. When it comes to financial guidance, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When Mindy and I want to upgrade our wallets, we turn to NerdWallet. Scott's right. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, Mindy and I were paying for vacations in cash, missing out on miles, and not even knowing what we're leaving on the table. But now we're flying through the skies for free, thanks to our new cards with more miles and upgrades than ever. So if you want more travel rewards, hotel upgrades, or airport lounge access, no matter where you go next, let NerdWallet help you make it happen with a killer travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval, and terms of each credit card issuer apply. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that a long time ago, before I ever started my real estate business, I turned one of my first primary residences into an Airbnb? And that's the extra income that I needed from Airbnb that gave me the confidence to go out and work for myself and eventually quit my 9 to 5 job. And now I have dozens of Airbnbs all over the country. I've even partnered up with the old David Green on a recent property in Scottsdale to take our portfolio to the next level. And of course, we host it on Airbnb. But you don't need to be a full-time real estate investor to start on Airbnb. As a matter of fact, I was self-managing 10 properties while working my 9-to-5 job, so I know anybody can do it. Think about it this way. You're looking for extra income and going on a vacation. Wouldn't it be great to rent out your space and let your property pay for itself while you're gone? I did this one time. I pitched my wife and my roommate because we were house hacking on the idea of renting out our home, and it paid for all of our expenses on a trip to Mexico City. So go and give it a try. It might just change your life just like it did mine. And I really do mean that. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You're trying to save, trying to invest, but your bank account is stuck. How about we get rid of some of those unused subscriptions you forgot about? Trust me, with Rocket Money, it's easy. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Take control over your subscriptions and cancel your unused ones with just a few taps. Create a custom budget, view spending habits, and let Rocket Money negotiate to lower your bills for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash bpmoney. That's rocketmoney.com slash bpmoney. rocketmoney.com slash bpmoney. Listen up, business owners. Here's some quick math. Fewer costs equals more profit. The problem? You're spending more than ever on operations, materials, deliveries, software, and more. So why not reduce your costs and headaches with NetSuite by Oracle? NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. NetSuite lives in the cloud, which means you can reduce IT costs with no hardware required. Cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because now you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. It makes sense that over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Don't let rising costs sink your business's growth. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash bpmoney. That's netsuite.com slash bpmoney. 
netsuite.com slash bpmoney. Okay, next question here. Dear Mindy and Scott, I have a friend who has several real estate rentals and insists on using an LLC for tax write-offs. However, my accountant advised him against an LLC. Can you explain when one should put rental properties into an LLC and the pros and cons of doing so? Thank you, Deb. Ooh, Deb, I like this question a lot because there are so many nuances to the LLC. An LLC is a limited liability company, and you should always put your rental properties into a limited liability company, except when it doesn't make sense, such as you can't keep your money separate. So there is this thing called piercing the corporate veil. And what that means is you have, there's there's a wall between you and your corporation or your LLC. And if all of your personal money stays on the right side of the wall and all of your corporate money stays on the left side of the wall, they the, the wall hasn't been pierced. The corporate veil hasn't been pierced. But if you, the person put money into the LLC account or you pay a personal bill with LLC money, that wall, that veil has been pierced. And now all of the protections that the LLC did offer are gone. They're moot. And any good attorney can figure out a way to pier- that you have pierced that corporate veil unless you are fastidious about keeping your personal and your business money separate. Can you keep your personal and business money separate? Of course you can. Is it super easy to co-mingle your money? Absolutely. So you have to be really, really conscious about keeping the money separate. Should you need an infusion of cash into your business, your personal money is being lent to your business with a formal loan and a payback schedule and all of that. It sounds really complicated. It's not that complicated. It just takes some thought. So if you are going to put a rental property into an LLC for the purposes of protection, you have to make sure that you never, ever, 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 ever commingle money. If you can't, and be honest with yourself, if this isn't something that you're going to be able to do, then get yourself a really good umbrella policy. I would still put each individual property into an LLC, especially if you're in a uh, state like Colorado, where an LLC is $50 to start it up and you can do it yourself on the uh, Secretary of State website. It takes like 20 minutes. Um So I would absolutely do that to start the protections. But then you also want to get yourself a good umbrella insurance policy that ensures the protection because the person that's suing you, and that's the only reason you put a rental property into an LLC, is to make sure that you don't get sued um, or to protect yourself against getting sued. The person that's suing you is going to go after the big dollar figures. And when you have an insurance policy of like a million dollars, that's probably more money than you have. And they'll go for that instead. Um, one thing to note is that if you put your property into an LLC, if you title it in an LLC, you could get your mortgage called due. There's a clause in every mortgage called the due on sale clause, which means if title changes from uh, Scott Trench to Scott Trench LLC, then that is considered a a sale because the title changed. And the mortgage lender could 
call your note due, meaning, hey, you have $300,000 left on your loan. You owe us $300,000 by the end of the month. Um, Is it likely that they're going to call it due if you continue to make payments? No, it isn't likely, but it is an option. So you have to be aware of that. Now, when you buy the property, if you put it into Scott Trench LLC instead of Scott Trench, the name, you put the mortgage in that name and the property in that name, then you have nothing to worry about. I think you framed it really well. I want to start off with a couple of points here, though. I have a friend who has several real estate rentals and insists on using an LLC for tax write-offs. The LLC does not, let me repeat, does not produce tax write-offs or tax advantages in really any form for a traditional long-term rental property investor. It does not produce tax advantages right? It's a pass-through entity. The rental income or loss from your LLC in your real estate business will pass through to your personal tax return. Do not set up an LLC for tax advantages. An LLC is an asset as a part of your overall asset protection strategy, okay? And when you're thinking about asset protection, you got to think about a ton of holistic things. To Mindy's great points, right? You got to run this thing as a business. You got to have a separate bank account. You've got to actually, you know, manage it like a business, separate, you know, email address, all these different things. Do not commingle them. It's, you know, when's a good case, when's a bad case to use an LLC because of the corporate veil? When you're buying your first house hack, you're living in the property. How can you possibly make an argument in front of a judge that your business is separate from your personal? Uh, another bad use of an LLC, in my opinion, someone's worth 25 grand and buys their first house hack rental property. And all of their wealth is now in their 10 or $15,000 of equity in the business. Why would you go to the trouble of setting up an LLC, paying the 800 bucks in California, for example, filing a separate tax return, which your CPA may charge you a thousand or more for if it actually produces uh, any revenue when you have no other meaningful assets to protect. When's a good use of an LLC? Maybe you have a business that has, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 rentals. Maybe it generates hundreds of thousands of dollars in wealth. Maybe you have hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars in other assets outside of that business that you that you want to protect. Maybe you have a property management a company running your business for you and are participating by managing the property manager, not managing the properties directly. Now there's a clear distinction between your personal assets and the operations of the business. So when you go think about the LLC, don't listen to the attorney or the CPA alone. Get a broad perspective here that includes investors, your lender, your CPA, your attorney, and form your own opinion here. Here's a great business model. I'm a CPA. I, I see that I have a new, a newish real estate investor who's a little uh, uh, concerned or feels icky about their situation with uh, their rental properties and their asset protection. As the CPA, I advise said client to set up four LLCs, one for each property and a holding company that strips the equity. This is a, a topic that you can clearly see I have a vendetta against. Now, sure, there's some asset protection advantages potentially in there that might be valuable for an uber wealthy investor or someone who has a ton of these things. But what's realistically happening here is there's an $800 fee or or whatever the fee is in your state for filing each one of those LLCs. You got to file a separate tax return each year on those things. And who's going to file that tax return? It's going to be your CPA 
who set up all of those different uh, entities there. That's a great business model. That CPA makes four, five, six, seven thousand $7,000 per year forever after. And they, of course, will give you a great rate compared to the next CPA because they set it up and know how, know how it is. So you're stuck with like, this is the trap that I think people fall into when we talk about the LLC argument. And this is why you got to think for yourself. Is there a right answer here? No, there's pros and cons for that equity stripping and multi, uh, you know, series LLC component that I just talked through. And there are major cons. The right place for LLCs, in my view, is when there's other assets to protect and it's part of an overall asset protection strategy. Now, how can I protect my assets outside of an LLC? To Mindy's point, there's an insurance agent who's also a part of your asset protection policy. And then there's how you operate your rental business, right? Stay up to date with the laws. Make sure your lease meets state requirements. Make sure you're maintaining your property appropriately. Make sure it's clearly spelled out who's responsible for lawn care, snow removal, for example, on your property, right? Make sure everything's in good condition. Those are the things that are going to provide more asset protection for many new investors than an LLC in the early stages. Thank you, Scott. Somehow I missed the tax advantages or tax write-offs part of the question. And you're right. There are no tax write-offs or tax advantages for an LLC. It's just a pass-through. I'm glad you you caught that. Thank you. When you pay your accountant $2,000 to file your tax return at the end of the year, that's tax deductible. But I'd rather have the two thousand dollars and pay tax on some percentage of it personally. Sorry, in, 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 in you know, in the early stages of investing, at least for me. All right, Scott. Here's our next question, dear Mindy and Scott. At what dollar amount do you decide to cash out your equity or keep getting rent payments, even though the rent might not be great return on equity? JM. Okay, I'm going to reframe the question here a little bit. It's not it's it what they're they're talking about return on equity, right? So when I buy, let's say I buy a house hack, right? I'll use an example. I bought a duplex house hack uh, uh, a number of years ago um with with, with a, a a partner, right? And I own that with my LLC. Um that duplex appreciated in value greatly. There's hundreds of thousands of dollars in in equity in the property. Right now, that property is generating, I don't know, $15,000 in cash flow, let's call it on 250 grand in uh in equity. Right? So what is that? That's going to be like a 5ish percent cash flow return on my my equity. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. 5 5ish percent cash flow on that equity. If I wanted to up the cash on cash return from that portfolio, I could re-leverage the property by cash out refinancing, getting a higher mortgage balance, reducing the equity and potentially getting more cash flow. With higher interest rates, that's become harder. Two or three years ago, that's what you do, right? You just re you cash out refinance, you pull it out and your payment might even go down after you pull out a ton of cash because you've got, um, so we had such low interest rates. Nowadays, if I were to do that, I'd probably have less cash flow than I uh, uh, I have today because I have a higher interest rate. Um, I have much less cash flow because I probably get a bigger balanced loan, first of all, and I'd have a higher interest rate. I might be negative. So in a theoretical sense, in a stable interest rate environment, I think that it's when your return on equity drops below a certain threshold that you're comfortable with. That's when you pull out cash. And there's an art to that. Do you hold the property for five years, seven, 15, 20, um, whatever. It's whatever you're comfortable with. In today's environment, I think in a practical sense, we're all stuck, many of us uh, long-term real estate investors, right? Like we're not going to refinance our property at a higher interest rate unless we have an incredible opportunity to redeploy the cash. And we're going to make way more money on the new investment 
because it's clearly or almost all cases going to hurt the cash flow and returns on the existing property to move from a 3% interest rate mortgage to a 7.5% interest rate mortgage today. Hopefully that answers this person's question in a more practical both the theoretical um, construct and the practical constraints of today. Awesome. Scott, I don't have anything to add. That was a really great answer. Oh, all righty. Awesome. Dear Mindy and Scott, my daughter would like to dabble in the stock market with her own money. She has about $1,000 saved. Where would you direct her to start? VOO or VT Sachs? Sincerely, Anonymous. Okay. Well, VOO is the S&P 500 index. That is the 500 largest companies in the US. And VTSAX is the total stock market index, essentially every publicly traded company. So what is her goal? With $1,000, and when Anonymous says my daughter, I'm thinking somebody who is younger than 18. Um, and she uses the word dabble. So I'm, I'm thinking a child. Uh, $1,000, I think either one of these is going to be a good choice. I would honestly, at that age, I would have them choose a company that they like. Uh, they go to McDonald's as a big treat or they go, my little neighbor, Abby, loves Costco. She gets so excited to go to Costco. I would buy one or five shares of a company that she understands, she recognizes, and watch that stock specifically. And then either VOO or VTSAX, even a tech-heavy fund might be good at this age. She's going to have a ton of time to grow. What are the biggest growth stock companies right now? The FANG companies, the uh, it's heavy on tech is the, the top growth companies. So I would go with one of those, the bulk of the money going into either VOO or VTSAX with a little bit left over for a company that she can follow, maybe a couple of companies she can follow um, so that she can learn how to read the stock market, the ticker symbols, the, you know, the, the, when you look it up online, read the the whole chart and start to get a feel for that. She also will get interested in it because then when you go into Costco, I own part of this company. There's like a sense of pride when you own part of a company when you're that age. And it gives you maybe a little bit more understanding because the stock market is this theoretical thing. And VOO and VTSAX are going to be this like concept more than a hard a hard, uh, tangible thing you can grasp. But when you own a share of Costco, you can walk into Costco and she can say, I own this company. I own a portion of this company. And it makes it a little more real and it makes it a little easier to understand. I completely agree with Mindy's answer. I, I think especially the younger, like let's say this this daughter was 12 or younger. I, I just think there's so much more value in the comprehension and understanding of buying a piece of a company that they know like the, the, when you see a kid buy, you know, I, I, there's a, a while back, you know, it was like, well, it's a company, you know, eight year old kid, Nike loves Nike. Great. Let's buy a share of Nike stock right now. You own a small piece of Nike that excites a child in a way that owning a slice of the VOO or VT Sachs will not. And I don't think it's really about the returns here at this point in time. If we're just starting to dabble, um, it's about, 
understanding what we're doing and the power of investing to Mindy's point. Now, if you're saying I'm trying to start a system of investing where my daughter who just got her first paycheck and is now going to be working year round uh, after school and in the summers at this job, and I need a system for investing. Okay. Now we're going into the index fund and beginning to, to, to make that our, our, our core formula here. But for the first little investment, I love the specific stock company that they know can follow, can understand what's going on and learn kind of the, the basic concepts here. Now, this person also asked about VOO versus VT Sachs. And I just want to call out, what is the difference here? VOO is the S&P 500. It's the largest 500 companies in the United States. And VT Sachs is the total stock market index, which is every publicly traded company in the United States. So you're really arguing a very semantic point here. In historically, the returns have been very tightly coupled. And going forward, the returns will be very tightly coupled. VT Sachs is heavily weighted by mar is marked weighted by market cap. So it's heavily weighted towards the 500 largest companies in the US. It just has additional exposure with some smaller companies. Those smaller companies, if they were to get big, would make it onto the S&P 500 and replace some of the other companies uh, in VOO in, in a future state. So you're investing in almost the same thing, and it's just not a big choice. It's just, do you want the big companies um, or the or, or VT Sachs? For what it's worth, um, JL Collins likes VT Sachs. I think he's probably right. I happened to start investing in VOO years back. So I'm in VOO. If I were to start over, I might have a 51%, 49% preference uh, for VT Sachs versus VOO, but it's really a semantic point. Um, you might also consider international exposure at some point, but that's a whole other topic for another episode. Um, and that's VTI, if you want to think about that one for another index fund there. So hopefully that wasn't too confusing. Bottom line, don't spend a lot of time debating about VOO versus VT Sachs. The returns, I bet you over the next 50 years will be within one or two percentage points between the two funds. We'll see if I'm right, but that would be my guess. Scott, you mentioned JL Collins. If your child is thinking about dabbling in the stock market, I would imagine that they would be old enough to read A Simple Path to Wealth, which he wrote aimed at his daughter who I believe was 17 when he started writing the the stock series on his website. So it is, and he wrote it in easy to understand terms so that his daughter would know how to invest when she decided to start investing. So um, that is a great book to give your child to start reading as well. So long as they can understand, um, I would say maybe uh, age 12, 10 or 12, depending on how, advanced they are, but if they're ready to start dabbling in the stock market and have already saved up a thousand dollars, I would guess that they're ready to read a simple path to wealth. I do wonder, would it be easier to get them to buy a single share of a stock they know or to read a six hour, seven hour book, which is fantastic, by the way. I don't know. Uh, that would be, yeah. I'll find that out in 12 years when uh, Katie grows up. Take a road trip and do the audio book because JL Collins narrates it and he's got a voice. Ooh. Oh, I should do that now. Baby would probably fall right asleep <laughs> to those dulcet tones. That's the simple path to wealth. It's a fan favorite for me and Mindy and for a lot of uh, BP Money listeners. JL Collins, he's been on the show a few times. Definitely go check that one out. Uh, I'll plug that as well. Okay, Scott, we have a correction to make. On a recent episode, we mixed up the terms Medicaid and Medicare. Medicaid is a healthcare system for people with low income, whereas Medicare is for people over the age of 65. 
the wealthy early retiree with zero income would technically qualify for Medicaid, but there are ethical concerns about taking Medicaid when you don't actually qualify on an income or net worth level. That's right. Or for disability. And and uh, they would not qualify for Medicare just from an age perspective until traditional retirement age. Right. So apologies for mixing up those terms. They're so similar that my mouth sometimes gets confused. Well, should we get out of here, Mindy? That wraps up this episode of the Bigger Pockets Money Podcast. We enjoy answering your questions. So again, if you have a question for us, you can submit it at biggerpockets.com slash money question. All right. He is Scott Trench and I am Mindy Jensen saying, gotta shake, rattlesnake. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star review on Spotify or Apple. And if you're looking for even more money content, feel free to visit our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash biggerpocketsmoney. Bigger Pockets Money was created by Mindy Jensen and Scott Trench. Produced by Kaylin Bennett. Editing by Exodus Media. Copywriting by Nate Weintraub. Lastly, a big thank you to the Bigger Pockets team for making this show possible. There's a reason small multifamily investing is so popular in the Bigger Pockets community. With just a 3.5% down payment, you can own up to four different units. Think about it. If you house hack and live in one of the units, you still have three different groups of tenants helping to pay down your mortgage each month, four kitchens and bathrooms you can renovate to increase your property value, four different Airbnbs, medium-term rentals, or other rental strategies you can try in one property, all in just one transaction. Of course, the question is, where do you find a small multifamily property that you can afford? Which market and which deal is best for you? Once you close, how do you manage it, optimize it, keep scaling, and living your life without being tied down by four leaky toilets or four fussy tenants? These are all great questions, all to be answered in the upcoming Small Multifamily Bootcamp with Chris Lopez and Leica Devtha. So if you're serious about growing your portfolio with this highly efficient strategy, head to biggerpockets.com slash four today and join us in the Small Multifamily Bootcamp. That's biggerpockets.com slash F-O-U-R. See you there. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all host and participant opinions are their own. Investment in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. Bigger Pockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.